0: But a day to come when the Lord will wipe away each tear-stained eye. Wipe away the tears from our eyes. And I want us to think this evening about some of the particular tears that are shed over the apparent injustice of life in this world. We are raised to believe that crime doesn't pay, but often the opposite seems to be the case. Why is it that so many people who have little or no regard for the Lord and His ways seem often to enjoy Every benefit in life. Now that is not universally true, obviously. But it is a a universally observed generalisation and it's probably something that has crossed your mind from time to time. Psalm 73 is one portion of God's Word that attempts to help us understand how God operates in our world and in our lives in these days until that time when the Lord Jesus comes and is seen to be the King of all the nations and uh, wipes every tear from our eyes. The key question in this passage this evening is not only why did bad things happen to good people, that was part of the mystery that Asaph struggled with, but also why did good things happen to bad people. Let me give you three pastoral examples that I've encountered over the years. What do you tell the young married Christian couple who are going through the agony of miscarriage, trying to comfort each other in the hospital ward, while in the opposite bed there is a lady who already has two children, who fell pregnant unexpectedly, and because of the third pregnancy being an inconvenience, she's going to have an abortion. Is that fair? What do you tell the Christian businessman who refuses to fiddle his tax return or engage in shady deals whose business is struggling to stay afloat while his less scrupulous competitors are going from strength to strength and receiving awards from the local chamber of commerce. Is that fair? What do you tell the Christian young person who honors the Lord in her relationships? She would love to marry and settle down, but there are no suitable Christian men in her life. That's difficult enough, but twice, This year she will attend weddings of friends, one of whom professed faith in the Lord but is marrying a non-Christian, and the other a friend from work who's had a number of partners and now finally is settling in marriage. Is that fair? Does that feel good? Often we're struck by the apparent absence of what we would call natural justice or spiritual justice in the world. And for those of us who entrust our lives to the care of a sovereign God who is all-powerful and in control of everything, these circumstances can be all the more mystifying. Now that's precisely the issue that Asaph was struggling with in this psalm. Notice with me, first of all this evening, his crisis of faith. In verse 1, his ultimate conclusion is this, that God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But though his psalm might begin here, his experience did not begin here. This was something that he came to understand through a long and bitter experience. Now let me just say to you that when he speaks in verse 1 of being pure in heart, he does not mean being sinlessly pure. He's not simply saying that God is good to Israel, that is in today's equivalent to his covenant people, to those who are pure in heart, to those who are sinlessly perfect. That would rule all of us out. That does not, that's not the equivalent in terms of pure in heart. What Asaph is speaking about here in in verse 1 is what you'll remember James speaks about in in his first chapter. Remember James chapter 1 verse Five, when he speaks about the fact that if any one of you lacks wisdom he should ask God who gives generously all to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But he goes on to say when he asks he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man unstable in all he does. Now that's the kind of picture that Asaph has here he says that we will never understand the goodness of god to his people until we are single mindedly committed to him and to his way until we have closed the door to all other interpretations of life on planet earth until we have ceased to live by sight and have begun entirely to live by faith, then at that point, says Asaph, we will all be able to say, yes, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In that sense, to those who are single-mindedly seeking after God. To those who have utterly trusted God in spite of all the appearances to the contrary. Pure and undivided in heart. But Asaph himself wasn't always like that. Notice verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost My foothold, To walk by faith and not by sight in the way that I described this evening is an uphill struggle on a narrow road. And Asaph tells us that he nearly lost his grip. Isn't it true that often it's only as we look back on these situations in our life that we can see how close to the edge we came? Well, his crisis of faith, notice, began with what he saw. He began to notice what you must have noticed. But life is often apparently quite easy for those who are exclusively good to themselves and ruthlessly oppressive towards others. Notice verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Notice verse 6. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Verse 7. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. In their, in their arrogance they threaten oppression. And most astonishing for all, of all for Asaph is that this selfish behaviour seems to win respect. Notice verse 10. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now the exact meaning of that phrase in the Hebrew is, is difficult just to tie down. But in general terms, Asaph says that although these people treat others like dirt, they are admired for it. Effectively, verse 10 says, people turn to them and lap it up. And that's true to life, isn't it? Haven't you noticed that? That the less you do for others, the more highly thought of you are. The more you look after yourself, the more others learn to look after you. And they lap it up. No no surprise to find that the root of such a disregard for other people is a disregard for God. Notice verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. In other words, their boast is, We are God. Verse 11. They say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? What amazing arrogance and defiance. These are the kind of people who will say to you, Do you seriously tell me that you believe in a sovereign God who knows everything? He can't be there because if he knew what I was getting away with, he would have stopped it long ago. They're the kind of people who say to you, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? You see, when people are consumed by themselves, actually they live under the tyranny of Satan. Selfish people are always godless people. Which is why one of the clearest signs that Christ has freed a person from that tyranny is a love and concern for others, because people who are under that tyranny don't have a love and concern for others. So one of the signs that Christ has set you free from the tyranny of selfishness is that you'll turn up on Saturday night to discover what God is doing in other parts of the world because you have an interest in knowing, because you have a love for people you've never met because you have a concern to know how the gospel is spreading in places you may never visit. That's the marvel of mission. Back to the text. It wasn't just that people lived like this that gave Asaph his crisis of faith. It was that, verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills verse 12 this is what the wicked are like always carefree the increase in wealth oh how galling is that it's not universally true but as I say it is a universally observed generalization and what he saw explained how he felt back to verse 3 I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of Of the wicked. He envied these godless people who seemed to have it so good. He looked at his own life by comparison and began to wonder what was the point of faith in God. Notice verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Here is Asaph actually being as self centered as those whose lives he's been observing. And he says here in these verses all these years of service to the living God, all that I've done without, all that I've done in the cause of His name and glory and service, and what did I get out of it? But look at these people who've done nothing but look after themselves, and they go from strength to strength, and their wealth increases, and they're never at the doctor, and they have private health insurance that they never have to make a claim on. He considers that living a godly life has been a waste of time. He's poorer than the godless around him, both in terms of health and wealth. And so with heavy sarcasm, he concludes that he's been punished for being godly, while the ungodly have been rewarded for their selfish living. Well, Esau is brutally honest, isn't it? He doesn't pull any punches. He tells it like it is, holding nothing back. Now remember the first verse. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But he's admitting here down to verse 14 that this crisis of faith arose in his life, this huge problem spiritually dawned on him because he had not remained pure in heart. I don't remember what I said. I don't mean he he wasn't sinless. We know that. We take that as a given. But he hadn't remained undivided in his heart. He'd begun to reinterpret God's way of operating in the world. He'd begun not to trust God. He'd begun to wonder if God is good, or if God is love, or if God is all-powerful, or if God does know what is going on. He'd begun to wonder, like the wicked, does the Most High have knowledge? His crisis of faith was very real, and it was deeply private to him. Notice verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed Your children. Interesting verse. Asaph felt constrained not to speak out about this crisis of faith in case he transmitted it to others. That's a a fascinating thing to me, that verse 15. It was all boiling up inside him, but he somehow managed to keep a lid on it. He didn't rattle it all out in a prayer meeting or in a house group or something like that. He didn't boil over it. He was afraid that others of the covenant community would begin to waver in their faith and then collapse. And what wisdom there is in this. You know, there are times when it is inappropriate to wear our hearts on our sleeves, especially when we're deeply confused and we're not seeing the situation as clearly as we think we are. You've probably been in house groups as I have or in small group study as I have when the person who has never said anything all session finally plucks up the courage to say something and says all the wrong things and pours out a whole concoction of venom about life and how confused they are. And I've even heard people saying, I just wonder, God, do you know what you're doing at times? And you just cringe when you hear that. In the frailty of our hearts, there may be times we feel that way. But we need to learn from Asaph. Look what he says. If I had said, I will speak thus, I'm going to let it rip about this. I would have betrayed your children. There are times when in view of the spiritual fragility of others, we cannot afford to be too vocal about our own crisis. So what's the situation then? The fact is that any number of people could be experiencing a crisis similar to Asaph's crisis of faith right now and even those closest to us wouldn't know about it. That's why it's so vitally important that we're exposed to the Word of God. God calls His people to hear His Word. He brings us here to do surgery in our hearts week by week. He wants to open up His Word to us. He wants to have it shine as a light upon the dark places of our lives. He wants us to understand that He understands what we're going through. He wants to speak into these crises of faith. If people are questioning privately often His Word, will answer us publicly and yet still with terrific personal relevance and application. Well, we're now approaching the turning point in the psalm as Asaph summarizes his crisis. Notice verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. That's not a place. It may have been a place for Asaph. But the sanctuary of God is really just anywhere when you can get alone with God and take refuge in Him and find sanctuary in Him. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So we move from his crisis of faith, now secondly, in the middle of the psalm, to his confidence in God. We noticed a moment ago in verse 15 how careful he was not to harm God's children. And it is almost as though that lovely expression suddenly reintroduces him to the relationship that God has with his people. It's a relationship which brings a prosperity of infinitely greater worth and value than the prosperity of the wicked that he was ranting about in verse 3. So he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. It was an absolutely crushing burden till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Asaph began to see it clearly. Not in the first place by him working out the puzzle, but by him taking refuge in God. The solution to his problem was relational, not cerebral. You can't always study your way out of these things. The godless and their selfish arrogance seem to have prospered and escaped the discipline of God in a way that God's people apparently would not have escaped. it. But the point came in his agonizing about the apparent apparent injustices of life when Asa says, I found sanctuary in God, I took refuge in God, I hid myself in God. And as soon as I stopped relying on my own understanding and began to trust in the Lord with all of my heart, well, he says, that was the turning point for me. That was, that was when I began to see light at the end of the tunnel. That's when I began to see this life, in the light of eternity, to, to, to comment on something we were seeing this morning. You see, his confidence in God is restored as he is reminded of what it is to have a father-child Relationship with the Almighty God. And as he thinks about what it is like not to have that relationship with Almighty God, he comes to realize that there is a day to come when those who have lived without reference to the Lord will realize that for all they have lived in their rejection of Him, their life may have been sweet in this life, it will bring the most appalling bitterness in eternity. Notice verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O oh Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Have you ever had your, your rapid eye movement sleep just immediately before the alarm goes off in the morning and you've had a brilliant dream and you just get the tail end of it as it disappears out of sight? And as you fumble around to switch the alarm off, you want to get the dream back because it was a good feeling and it was a pleasant memory. And where was I? And what was I thinking about? But it's gone. And walking to the bus or the train or in the office or going for lunch, you'll f- what was I dreaming about last night? What? That was a lovely dream I had. Where was I? Who was I with? But you can't get it back. It's gone. Asaph says, as a dream when one awakes so when you arise O Lord you will despise them as fantasies these evil wicked people some of whom we've been reading about their activities on the screen this evening who live without reference to God who live despising his people oppressing his people who seem all powerful just now when God arises when he to put it in the vernacular when he gets up I don't know if it's the same in the east of Scotland but the great threat of a father in the west of Scotland to his young child is you see if I get up and we very rarely actually get up but it's the threat is you see if I get up to you and here's what Asa saying the day comes when God will get up see when he arises they will be gone as a fantasy when one away." Now don't forget that Asaph was deeply disturbed by the unchecked blasphemy of the godless people around him. We've seen that in verse 9, how their mouths lay claim to heaven, how their tongues take possession of the earth. We saw it, didn't we, in verse 11. They say, how can God know, does the Most High have knowledge? And he was deeply disturbed by the fact that they could go on and brag and boast and defame and abuse the name of his, his God that he loved It really concerned him that God didn't seem to be defending his name. But his confidence in God is restored because he grasps the fact that far from being powerless to defend his honour, God is all-powerful over them. When he gets up, he will deal with them. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. As a dream when one awakes, they'll be gone. They'll be history. Now we need to also say that Asaph surely cannot see the ruin of the wicked from God's perspective and experience any sense of delight in it. It would be easy to come across that way tonight. It would be easy to read these verses and imagine Asaph rubbing his hands in delight and shouting to those he's been describing who've been so oppressing him by their conduct. Just you wait, you'll see what's coming to you. It would be easy to see him fanatically expecting the horrors that await these people. And we do live in a vengeful culture. The desire for revenge is in us from our earliest days. I remember comforting one of, our, one of our daughters when she was only two after an ugly clash with her sister and picking up this little toddler who was crying and, and wailing and comforting her and said, asking her, was there anything I could do to make her feel better? And she said as clear as a bell, smack clear. See, that vengefulness is in it. Left to himself, no doubt Asaph would have felt very satisfied with the thought of the wicked being, to quote the text, cast down to ruin, completely swept away. But remember the basis of his discovery, verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, till I took refuge in God, I began to then understand their plight. And so he is seeing their eternal destiny from the perspective of the one who, according to the scripture, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The one who is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So this is not a gleeful, vengeful experience in Asaph's heart. Talking about repentance, interestingly, that was certainly the outcome in Asaph's own life. His crisis of faith and his confidence in God restored moved to his confession of sin thirdly. It had seemed so unfair to Asaph that the godless had an easier life than the godly. This injustice had gnawed away at Asaph, but then he got back to God and his word and he realized that irrespective of how the years of time unfold for any of us, there is an awful fate awaiting those who live and die out of fellowship with God who lived their lives without reference to him. And as the force of this strikes Asaph, and as he sees their eternal destiny from the perspective of that God, as we've described him in in these previous verses, the force of it strikes him. He feels ashamed of his earlier complaint. Notice verse 21. "When When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He admits to have been like a bull in a china shop. And he thought he had it all so carefully thought out as he made his petition to God. He'd gathered his file and all the evidence was there that these people were getting away with murder and God was doing nothing about it. And he'd begun to lose confidence and faith in the Almighty God. And there he was with all the facts and figures at his fingertips. But when he finally took refuge in God and when he understood God's eternal purpose and all of these things and God's ability to honour his own name and defend himself, Asaph says, I wasn't like a brilliant journalist. I was like a bull in a china shop. I was like a brute beast. I was senseless and ignorant. The realisation that there is a day A day of reckoning when it will be seen that contrary to the defiance of the wicked in verse 11, the Most High does have knowledge. There is a day coming when it will be made crystal clear that how a person has lived in relation to him is actually all important. And this causes Asaph now to quake more than he did earlier in his rage. Now he no longer envies the wicked for he has understood that their present prosperous circumstances are fleeting and their prospective circumstances in the hands of the living God are unimaginably awful unless they repent we can imagine him wince as he remembers his comments in verse 13 surely in vain I've kept my heart pure in vain I've washed my hands in innocence now look at verse 23 yet I'm always with you You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Do you see what the Lord does for his people? Is our faith ever in vain? Is it all for nothing? We can apply these words directly. You guide me with your counsel. That is true of the New Testament believer. Every bit as much, if not more, than it was true of the Old Testament. You guide me with your counsel. You're always with me. You hold me by your right hand and afterwards you will take me into glory. So we're constantly in His presence. He holds us. He guides us for all of life and then one day He'll take us to be with Him. And there we'll find our home. Our life before the throne. We'll honor Him in perfect song where we belong. What an amazingly well-developed theology of God's gospel purpose this psalmist had. As he thinks about his relationship with God, Asaph expresses in his own words in Psalm 73 what Paul later expressed in Philippians 1. If you want to do something when you go home tonight, write out Philippians 1, 25 and 26 and compare it with 23 and 24 of Psalm 73. Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't that amazing? For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Parallel experience. we're not meant to feel that to die is gain only when life on earth is unbearable that is actually meant to be the constant experience of those who love the Lord irrespective of how much we're enjoying life now we ought to have that heavenly homing device beeping away in our hearts well perhaps we need to travel the road that Asaph traveled he was way off course in verse 3 when he envied the arrogant saw the prosperity of the wicked there's plenty of that to see in Scotland today there's plenty of that to see in the western world there's plenty of that to see in the nations if you want to be thoroughly disgruntled then have a good look and you will see the arrogant you'll see the prosperity of the wicked and if you'll open your heart to it if you refuse to be single minded then you will become thoroughly disenchanted in your faith he saw and he envied isn't that exactly what Jesus warned us about In Mark 4. Some of you have been doing Christianity Explored, working your way through Mark's Gospel. Jesus wonders about these very issues in Mark 4. Let me read to you from verse 18. He's talking about those who hear the word, and he says, Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, And the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Wasn't that exactly what had gone wrong with Asaph? It was the worries of this life. He kept looking around him and seeing all these arrogant, defiant people who were prospering and going from strength to strength. And he wanted a slice of the action. He wanted a piece of it. The Lord Jesus hits the nail on the head the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. How is wealth deceitful? Wealth is deceitful in the sense that we imagine it's all that matters. We imagine that all our security is in it. And the desires for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. That was Asaph's problem. And we need to be wary of it. These verses also serve to warn us that even when we feel strongly about something, we may not be right. I don't know how many times I've had to remind myself of this but the strength and the depth of our attitude to something does not guarantee the rightness of the attitude. And I may say to you that I feel strongly about this. But that doesn't mean to say I'm right to feel strongly about it. Asaph felt strongly about it. But then later he realized he was like a brute beast. He would have told any challenger that he really felt strongly about the issue. Yet as later he repented he was ashamed of it all I wonder have you ever been embittered in your spirit over some circumstances that have overtaken you in your life in your Christian experience have you ever been provoked to think as Asaph did and know that as your conscience goes on to red alert you just trip the switch and bypass your conscience telling yourself how deeply you feel about this so you're going to have a rant at least inwardly for a wee while about this issue whatever it may be for you and you see yourself being ill done by, mistreated, justifiably irritated. Here is what we're really like in that moment. We're really senseless and ignorant as a brute beast. Because the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things that people have that we don't have come in and choke the word in our lives. So we need to learn to see this life from the perspective of eternity. And that in the end is what Asaph had to learn. And as we close and draw this to a conclusion, notice that finally the man who was afraid to open his mouth in verse 15, in case his toxic thinking contaminated anyone else, finds a new reason to speak to others in verse 27. Those who are far away from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. you want to go out of Charlotte Baptist Chapel this evening into this week, clear on how we ought to be responding to this passage. We need to do business with God in our own hearts, but we need to be going and telling of his deeds. Not only to those who share our conviction about the gospel and about the lordship of Christ, but we need to be telling of his deeds to those who are far from him who are going to perish. To those who are facing destruction because of their unfaithfulness to God, they too need to hear of his deeds they too need to hear of our glorious God. Father, we ask you to help us to understand this psalm, this passage of your word this evening. We thank you for it. We thank you for the candid frankness of the biblical writer inspired by your Holy Spirit. We want to pray this evening that if we have been where Asaph was, or if we are now where Asaph was, that we would conclude that it is good for us to be near God and make the sovereign Lord our refuge and tell of all your deeds Lord may it be true of us that we're able to say Lord you are more precious than silver Lord you are more costly than gold there is nothing I desire compared with you help us then not to envy the prosperity of the wicked but to rejoice in the prosperity we have in Christ that we are your children, that we are always with you, that you hold us by our right hand, that you guide us with your counsel, that afterwards you'll take us into glory, that our flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion for it. Whom have we in heaven but you? The earth is nothing we desire beside you. Lord, may it be true for us. For the glory of the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.